The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's passage comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And if you're following in the Black Pew Bible, that would be on page 914. Please stand as I read God's word. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if by righteousness or through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. way through uh, Galatians here, and uh, we find ourselves in verses 15 through 21 this morning. Um, And so, uh, as you'll see here as we begin to work through our text, we're re-overlapping on verses 15 and 16. Uh, They're just that important uh, through uh, for Paul's uh, letter that he wrote um, to to the Galatians. In a very real sense, verses 15 and 16 um, are the culmination of everything we've seen so far in the front half of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and they're really the hinge pin that will swing us into the back half of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, it's the high point, um, in a sense, where he finally gets to the place where he's going to describe the good news of the gospel in the language of being justified by faith in Christ, justified by faith in Christ. And it's just important for us to know what this means. And so that's exactly what we're going to tackle this morning and the implications it has for us as we continue to study study this letter. So we're going to hit pause. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to move through the preaching of God's Word. And then we're going to dive into our verses this morning, okay? So when we go to prayer right now, my encouragement would be this. Uh, It's the language of Pastor Tom when he does the gathering pastor. Uh, Don't be passive right now. Actively engage the Father right now in prayer, begging him by the power of the Spirit to open your eyes to see Jesus from the text, to open your mind to understand the word, that the gospel wouldn't just be a knowledge thing, but that the Spirit would help us to be people who know the gospel and are actively shaped and conformed into the image of Jesus as a result of the gospel, okay? So let's pray for these things. Father, our confession is this. We are weak. We are dependent. We are needy. And because we are weak, Because we are dependent and because we are needy, we come to you. You are the Lord who is merciful and gracious. You are the Lord who is slow to anger. You are the Lord who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are the Lord who delights to magnify your all-sufficient grace Through our weakness, you are the God who delights to magnify your perfect power in our inability. So this morning, I'm asking, Lord, that you would speak through me, a weak vessel, as I seek to pour out this immeasurable treasure from this jar of clay, the power of 
the treasure of the gospel this morning. Holy Spirit, I'm begging you, please come fill us this morning. Clothe this time with power so that the message this morning would not be in word only, but so that it would be a demonstration of the Spirit and of His power so that these words would land on us with full conviction. Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our mind to understand these words. It's in the name of the resurrected King, Jesus, I pray this morning. Amen. It was in the early years of our marriage, within the first year of our marriage, that uh, Tara and I were able to go and take a visit um, out to Asheville, North Carolina. And as we were in Asheville, North Carolina, we went and visited the Biltmore Estate. Uh, now, if you've ever visited the Biltmore Estate, you know that it is a magnificent sight to behold. Um, completed in the year 1895, George Washington Vanderbilt constructed a 250-room chateau. It's just truly an architectural masterpiece. Um, but wanting more than just a great house... Vanderbilt also wanted the surrounding grounds of his house to match the grandeur of his home. And so he hired a man named Frederick Law Olmsted to design the landscape of what would ultimately become acres upon acres of gardens surrounding the grounds of the Biltmore Estate that, if you go there today, just obviously match the magnificence of the home that Vanderbilt had built. And so, But here's what's so great about Olmsted's landscape design. If you go to the house, outstanding. It's just flat out beautiful. But then when you come out of the house and you begin to walk through these acres and acres of gardens that cover the grounds surrounding the Biltmore Estate, here's what's so great about the, the landscape design that Olmsted created. As you start walking the grounds, you can find yourself in any given section of garden that just simply takes your breath away. With the beauty of its flora, the way things are planted, the kinds of varieties and species of flowers, whatever it might be, there, there you are standing in a section of a garden, and it just blows your mind away with the beauty of God's creation. And then what you can do is just go continuing down the path, and you walk through this exquisitely designed gate. I mean, they did gates right back in the late 1800s, apparently. I'm like, this is just like magnificently, exquisitely designed gates that transfer you from one section of a beautiful garden and it just pumps you out into yet another equally section of beautiful, exquisite, magnificent garden. And much like the garden gates that are just exquisitely designed, magnificently constructed, beautiful in their own right, these magnificent garden gates of the Biltmore Estate, our verses before us this morning are like functioning in the exact same way. Connecting the breathtaking truth of the gospel that we've been chewing on in the front half of chapter 2, connecting to the mind-blowing reality of Christ living in me in the back half of chapter 2 stands the exquisite gate of verses 15 and 16. And so as we continue our stroll through the grounds of the book of Galatians, as it were, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pause in order to observe the magnificent beauty of the gate, verses 15 and 16, before we move on to the gospel garden that lies beyond the gate, the beautiful gospel garden of our death and our life in Christ. So now if you wanted to just summarize the beauty of the gate, so imagine as it were, we're standing there in the, 
in the in-between zone, in between the good news of gospel unity that Paul has been striving for in the front half of chapter 2. We know we're coming to another garden here in a couple of minutes, but you're standing there maybe under the archway of that exquisite beauty of verses 15 and 16, and you begin to observe it. And so we ask ourselves the question, how can we describe the beauty of the gate? That is, how can we summarize the point of verses 15 and 16? Well, we could easily say this. The beauty of this gate can be described as, through faith in Christ, we are accepted before God. This is the beauty of verses 15 and 16. This is the summarized essence of verses 15 and 16. Through faith in Christ, we, sinners, are accepted before God. Just look at how Paul describes the good news of our right standing before God in Christ. Look at the language he adopts as he, as he begins to unpack the gospel in this language of justification. Verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then with general language, he says this, Yet we know that a person, in general, is not justified by works of the law, but justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes to the personal level. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. The we there is Peter and Paul. Remember, this portion of verses 15 through 21 are flowing in line with this gospel opposition conversation that we focused on last week. The conversation's not done. Paul is still talking to Peter, and so he takes the good news of justification to a personal level there in the middle of verse 16. He says, listen, Peter, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, here it is, justified by faith in Christ. It's not by works of the law. And then he zooms out into a universal understanding of what's going on because he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so in verses 15 and 16, Paul reminds Peter that as Jews, they did not find right standing with God through obedience to the law, but they found right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ, period. Remember, Peter had lost sight of this gospel truth, and as a result, last week it was said that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel he believed. He was driven by fear of man, and then his fear of man led him to fall headlong into people-pleasing hypocrisy. And so to reorient his friend back to the truth of the gospel that Peter believes, Paul called his friend to remember that he had been justified by faith in Christ. You see, the doctrine of justification is at the very heart of Christianity. And that's because to be justified by God is to be made acceptable for fellowship with God. And what question could possibly be more important than this question? How can a righteous God accept an unrighteous person like me? If you're just not asking questions of the Bible and you're just sort of roaming through life and you're like, I just need someone to help me wrestle with this whole Christianity thing. Like, this is the nexus. This is the central thing. Asking the question of the Bible, how can a holy, righteous God who can have nothing to do with sin accept an unrighteous, sin-filled, sin-stained person like me? How do those two things meet? How do those two things mesh up? And so if we're going to grow in our understanding biblically of how indispensable justification is for the gospel, and if we're going to grow in our understanding of how indispensable justification is for the Christian life as a whole, then we must 
ask the question, what does justification mean? What does it mean to be justified before God? What does it mean to be justified by faith in Christ? Because if it's true that it's the answer to how a righteous God has fellowship with one with unrighteous man, Paul says it's this whole justification thing. If justification truly is the nexus of your right standing with God, if justification is truly indispensable for how you're going to walk through the life that you now live as a Christian, then you've got to wrestle with what does the Bible mean when it talks about being justified by faith in Christ? What does it mean? What does it mean? The great definition that we're going to chew on here for the next several minutes is this. Justification is the gracious act of God. It's the first part. By which God declares a sinner righteous. It's the second part. Solely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the third part. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner to be righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. So first we need to understand this. Justification is the gracious act of God. Justification is the gracious act of God. From beginning to end, listen, justification is all about grace. Justification is all about grace. Nothing in us merits God to save you. Nothing initiates God to save you. Nothing causes God to save us. God saves no one because they're good enough. God saves no one because they're worthy enough to be saved. For anyone to have a right standing with God, it's because God, by His good pleasure, delighted to act toward us in light of His unmerited favor, in light of His abounding grace. That's why justification is a gracious act of God that we need Him to take toward us. But justification is also the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous. You see, the word picture as we begin to work through this definition of justification, this word picture is that of a judge. A judge who has power, a judge who has authority. And when this judge speaks and declares something to be true, it is an irrevocable judgment. It's a once and for all declaration. And once this just judge has declared you justified, once this just judge has declared you righteous, the good news of justification is that you are justified forever. But notice that when God the judge makes his declaration, it involves a sinner. You see, the reality for all humanity is that all are under sin. None is righteous, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, when God lays hold of you, and draws you to himself, you will very quickly realize that God's just judgment is due to you because you are a sinner in rebellion to him. And his just judgment is not simply for your wickedness, but even for all your goodness because all your self-generated goodness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. Now in a sense, this is the bad news side of the gospel coin. Every single one of us are guilty sinners separated from God, incapable of making ourselves right with God. But it's this bad news side of the gospel which makes the good news of justification so stinking amazing. And that's because in justification, God takes a guilty sinner and declares them righteous. Listen, condemnation is what sinners deserve for their sin. 
Condemnation is what we rightly deserve from the just judge of all the earth for our rebel hearts steeped in sin. But praise be to God that justification is the opposite of condemnation. It's the unchangeable declaration that we are righteous in His sight. See, this is the good news of the gospel. By God's declaration, a sinner can have peace with God. By God's declaration, you can be pronounced innocent by His decree. By God's declaration, you can truly stand before a righteous God and that righteous God look at us and say, not guilty anymore, thus saith the Lord. And remember, this declaration of justification has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It's not because you're great, grand, wonderful, awesome, not because you met certain standards in life. It's not because you went to church enough, gave enough money to the church, read enough scripture, memorized enough things. Did, 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 did. It's not, it's not that. This declaration of justification has nothing to do with your works. And that's because justification is solely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's solely through faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared right with God. Listen. You are accepted before Him. You are justified. I keep using these terms. They're, they're synonymous, okay? To be justified before God is to have right standing before God, is to have a relationship with God. It's to be accepted before Him. We are declared right with God, accepted before Him, justified by trusting in Jesus, not faith plus what we do, but faith alone in Christ. I want you to listen to this story here. I think that illustrates this well. Uh, there's a story that's told about a wealthy Englishman, and this Englishman purchased a very English car, a Rolls Royce. And he took his new car on a trip to France. Now the car had been advertised as the car of all cars. It was a car that was an, a problem-free car. This kind of automobile, this specific version of the Rolls Royce, declared by a Rolls Royce, problem-free. Nothing wrong, ever goes wrong with this car. But when the man got his car to France, his car did what cars do, broke down. And so he called the Rolls-Royce folks in England, and being a high-end car company, they flew a mechanic to France to fix the man's car. Now, of course, the man expected to get an expensive bill from Rolls-Royce. After all, they had just flown a mechanic all the way out of the country to go and fix his car. But months go by, months go by, months go by, and he never hears from Rolls-Royce. And so finally he writes to them and says, listen, send me the bill, please. Like, I can pay the bill. I've incurred this debt. Send me the bill. I'll pay the bill. But in response to the letter he wrote them, the Rolls-Royce folks sent him a note back that said, I'm sorry, sir, but we simply have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. To the man's surprise, his bill was clean. His bill was clean. You see, this is what happens when someone believes the good news of justification. When you place your faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness, receive his righteousness, God looks at you and says, your bill is clean. I have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong in your life. Now keep in mind that justification is not God sweeping sin under the rug and pretending this sin has never existed. 
God knows your sin exists. You see, you are forgiven by God. Listen, you are forgiven by God not because God is forgetful. No, you are forgiven. You are accepted before God. You are justified by faith in Christ because by the death of Christ on the cross, God the judge actively took the righteousness of Christ and credited it to your account and then takes the sin and condemnation you deserve and actively credits it to Jesus' account. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange of the gospel. And it's what the Apostle Paul is on about when he says to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become, listen, the righteousness of God. You see, this is what it means to be justified through faith in Christ Jesus. The record of sin debt that stood against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross of God's Son. And with each blow of the hammer, it's as if God was pinning His Son to the cross. He goes, bang, that sin's forgiven. Bang, I've set it aside. Bang, I have canceled the record of debt. You see, this is the good news of God's justifying grace. This is why sinners like you and a sinner like me can be accepted before a holy and righteous God. It's because what Christ deserves is attributed to my account in the great exchange of the cross, and what I deserve was attributed to his account on the cross, and then the crucified Christ goes into the grave, and he's in the grave for three days, only on that third day to go walking out of that grave saying, I have satisfied your sin debt and my resurrection. And so now what we get to do is stand on this going, what? We're justified? Like, I'm standing clean before this righteous God because of what he did on the cross. The Bible goes, yeah. Yeah. It's not because you did anything. It's not because you're great. It's not because you were obedient enough. It's not because you did enough, thought enough, were clever enough, smart enough, beautiful enough. All those good things are like filthy rags in the sight of God. No justification says when the Father looks at us, He sees the Son. The righteousness of the Son attributed to my account. And so the question here this morning is this Have you been justified by faith in Christ? Have you been justified by faith in Christ? Man, I don't want to make it, make it simple, but I think it can be, be addressed in this way, that you're either here this morning justified by faith in Christ, or you're here this morning trying to rest in some works, hoping that in the end, when God is just weighing it out, the just judge, and he and I are interacting, you're either going to be banking on yourself plus a little bit of maybe Jesus stuff thrown in there, or you're just going to be resting solely on him? Are you justified by faith in Christ? You see, the Bible says this, that if the Spirit is pinging your brain right now, if the Spirit is pinging your spirit saying, that's not true of you, that's not true of you, and you know that that's not true of you, The flesh rises up and says, hey, man, we need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we need to knock this Jesus thing out a little bit more better, don't we? And that's the flesh trying to bank on works to have right standing with God. No, in that moment when the Spirit is pinging your spirit and saying, that's not true of you right now. The Bible says what you do is you just look and go, I'm a miserable sinner. I'm not right with you. 
And if I had an infinite eternity of eternities to try to make myself right with you, it could never be accomplished. And so what I'm doing is I'm coming to you poor, naked, blind, sinner, unrighteous, unholy, and I'm asking you, Father, save me. Please make me right with you. The Bible says the Father delights to hear that kind of prayer. And the Father delights to save sinners who come to him in confession, repenting of sin, and asking him to do only what he can do, which is save sinners. So if you're here in that place this morning, today, 2 Corinthians 6 says, is the day of salvation. You can do that business with God right now. Like, I'm going to keep talking, but you need to, like, plug ears, and you need to start talking with God right now and beg him to save you right now. Justified by faith through Christ alone. Now, for some of us, that's just good news. For others of us, this whole gospel of justification through faith in Christ, it just seems too good to be true. That simple? Man, that just can't be. can't be that simple. And apparently, as Paul continues in verses 17 through 21, there are others who are also thinking, ah, that's just too good to be true. Surely it can't be that simple. And if you remember the context of chapter 2 here, it's this, that the Judaizers, those Jesus plus something folks that were going around in the church, yeah, the whole Jesus thing, but we need to add a little something to this. We need obedience to the Mosaic law. We need to obey the food laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to add works to the Jesus thing. And so then with your powers combined, that is your right standing, your hope of right standing before God, your hope of being accepted before God. Your hope of justification, according to the Judaizers, was Jesus plus something. That was their hope of justification. Paul was saying, no, 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 no. Your hope of justification is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And so if anything, as Peter and Paul are in Antioch hashing out this Jesus plus nothing, that is your hope of justification gospel, these Judaizers are over here going, that's not true. That's just not true. It seems their argument was something along the lines of of this, that if we go the route of justification by faith alone, it's a surefire path back into sin, if it's anything. That's the argument of, I think, the Judaizers that was going on in Antioch. And so Paul, as he rounds out of 16 into verses 17 through 21... He's going to speak to this objection that apparently was lingering on the lips of the Judaizers as they were seeking to undercut the Jesus plus nothing gospel of Peter and Paul. And so Paul is going to speak to this objection by reminding the Galatians that through faith in Christ, we are both dead and alive. He's going to say, you guys need to know this truth. Through faith in Christ, we're both dead and alive. So just look at what he begins to write starting in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, so there it is, the, the, the Paul and Peter we, we too were found to be sinners. Question, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I, I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now you just need to know this. Verses 7, like if you just heard me like reading those verses and you're like, Mama Mia, what is that all about? Like you're in good company. Like you're in good company. Verses 17, 18, they are notoriously hard to understand. Okay? Many great commentators come at these verses in different ways. But as I was studying this past week and trying to wrap my head around Paul's words here in these verses, I've come to the place where I think our brother in Christ, Paul, was shining light on an argument that the Judaizers were using against Paul's gospel of justification. And so I think, again, the argument goes something like this. Listen, this is the argument of the Judaizers. So imagine that here's Paul over here, justification by 
by faith in Christ alone. And the Judaizers are going, man, I just don't know about that. Because listen, Paul, if you look to Christ alone as your justification, says the Judaizer, and if you abandon obedience to the law as a way of right standing before God, says the Judaizer, then you're just no better off than the Gentile sinners who want nothing to do with God's law. So here's the Gentiles over here saying, right, we've been perfectly fine without God's law. And then me, Judaizer, I'm looking at you, Paul, going, Paul, what you're over here doing is like you're linking yourself with these Gentile sinners who want nothing to do with the law because you're over here saying it's not Jesus plus law obedience is justification. It's Jesus plus nothing. And so when the Judaizers roll into town and discover that Peter and Paul were living like Gentile sinners, for them, they reached what seemed to be the obvious conclusion, which was being justified by faith alone causes people to sin in the name of Christ. But to this accusation, Paul heartily ejects, verse 17, certainly not, he says. On the contrary, what would prove them to be sinners, Peter and Paul, is if they go about seeking to rebuild what God's grace had torn down. If Paul were to teach that a person is right before God by observing the law, this is what actually would prove him, Peter, or anyone else to be sinners. So far from nullifying the grace of God, far from somehow suggesting that righteousness, right standing with God was through the law, and far from somehow suggesting that Christ died for no purpose, Paul is saying that all genuine believers have died to the law as any sort of hope of justification before God, and they've died to the law so that they might live to God. In other words, genuine believers are both dead and alive. They're dead and alive. They are the ones who can say, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the language of death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the language of life. You see, when we are justified by faith in Christ, it's as though we have died on the cross with Christ. And what this means is that not only did we die to the penalty, die to the power, die to the dominion of sin, but we have also died to ourselves. You see, the old self in Christ, the old I in Christ is dead. Gone are the days of me doing me. No longer is the theme song of our life, Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's not a theme song anymore. And so in a great gospel inversion, Paul is telling us that my death with Christ is actually my hope of life. I've got to die in order to live. Because once I've been crucified with Christ, dying to sin, dying to self, we can stand up and oddly enough in our death say, I'm actually living because it's Christ who lives in me. This is where the easy believism that is being sold today is the gospel is just completely undercut with this language here of verse 20. Listen, Easy believism says, hey, just believe intellectually that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Can you give mental assent to these sort of gospel data facts? Can you just sort of have on your mouth the language of, yeah, Jesus, he died, and Jesus, he rose from the dead, and yeah, I'm supposed to believe the gospel. Can you just espouse these sort of things? Can you espouse these sort of things? Of course you can. Well, that's good. And now, that's all there is to it. Easy believism just says, believe intellectually, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And beyond that, this whole belief in Jesus thing is to have no major effect in your life, nor should it. Jesus is just a little boop, cherry on top of your life. But the entire rest of the Sunday, it's all about you, baby. 
Do what you want to do, think how you want to think, parent how you want to parent, be a spouse how you want to be a spouse, work for your fame, work for your glory. Do you? Yeah, I mean, Jesus is on there. You can give mental assent to these things, but the Bible would say that's easy believism. And the problem with easy believism is that it's cheap grace. It's cheap grace. And you know you're holding on to cheap grace when your belief in Jesus requires nothing from you. You know your grace is cheap when your old self is still allowed to thrive front and center in your life unchecked and uncrucified. But costly grace, on the other hand, costly grace bids us to come and die. It bids us to come and die. It bids us to come and die to our old self because when you place your faith in Christ, Paul says you die with him. And now that you've been crucified with Christ, you are no longer the same me anymore. Your heart of stone has been crushed. Your pride has been shattered. Your life is now in surrender to Him. So where the pride of the old me once directed everything to live for personal pleasure, directed everything to live for a jockeying of position in this world, where the old me once directed everything to focus on self, self-esteem, self-help, self-love, self-confidence, self-direction, self-exaltation. Now, in Christ, your day-to-day life is radically transformed by the cross. The life you now live in the flesh, Paul says, it's just not the same. It's no longer me-shaped, rather it's cross-shaped. So friends, I just can't stress this enough. If you're here this morning and you can articulate gospel truths with your mouth, but the entire shape of your life is still me-shaped, I'm telling you, you have intellectual assent, but you don't have a gospel, grace-transformed, saving relationship with Christ. Because when Jesus saves you, you will be different. You will be different. Grace does not bulldoze somebody over only to pick them back up and go, hey, keep doing you. Grace bulldozes somebody and you get picked back up by Christ and he starts molding and shaping your life into his image so that as you're walking, you can look back and go, man, I was doing me, I was doing me, I was doing me, I was doing me. God's grace bulldozed me over and the trajectory of my life has been different ever since. It's not me-shaped anymore. It's cross-shaped. That's my life in Christ. And the cross-shaped life, it's just one of faith, Paul says, which is exactly what he says there in verse 20. I live by faith. But notice that it's not just faith and faith. It's not faith and hope. It's not faith in love. It's not faith in others. It's definitely not faith in politics. It's not faith in a spouse. It's not faith in friendships. It's not faith in your children. It's not faith in a job. Some of us could probably stand up and give testimonies. Man, like I've been resting my faith. I've rested my faith in some of those things before, and those were faulty foundations like I try to build my house upon the foundation of hope love faith and faith politics friendships jobs spouse marriage children to borrow the language of Jesus Matthew 7 that house was built on a foundation of sand I mean the first whiff of a storm that came through that foundation melted like butter and it was gone my life was wrecked in turmoil because I was building my foundation, my life of faith on a foundation that it was not meant to rest on. No, you see, the cross-shaped life is one of faith. What does he say there in verse 20? Faith in who? 
the Son of God. This is the one solid foundation that will never crumble, the rock which can't be moved. Faith in the Son of God who loved me. Gave himself for me. If those little phrases right there at the end of verse 20 don't stagger your mind, my encouragement would be you need to cancel whatever you're doing the back half of today and you need to go home and beg God to wow you with grace. Do you see what he's saying there? Paul is getting very intimate right now. And he is saying the Son of God loves me. Me? Me? Like, we know the me of Paul isn't so hot. Go read the back end of chapter one of Galatians. And yet, here he is. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, if Paul could stand up here, I think his, his, his knees would be buckling a little bit. Like, he'd be like, man, I need to sit down here for a second. He loves me. He gave himself for me. And so he says, man, it's a no-brainer on this one. This is why I'm giving my life of faith into to Christ. That's the foundation I'm going to be standing on. God's called me. God has saved me. I've died with him. I'm alive in him. So now this life I live in the flesh, this life of walking forward from that point of salvation, this life of moving forward in the things I think, say, and do, I'm going to walk in a way that reflects the realities of my simultaneous death and life in Christ. I'm going to walk by faith, believing, trusting, belly flopping onto the Son of God who gave himself for me, who loved me. I'm not going to try to do me anymore. Look at where me got me, says Paul. Me got me murdering Christians. Me got me trying to build a religious ladder to achieve heaven's delights, and they were all faulty. Me needs to die. And so what I'm going to do now is through the death of me, with my crucifixion, with Christ, and now what? Glory upon glory, Christ takes up residence in me. This life that I live now, it's going to be me banking everything on Christ, everything on Christ, everything on Christ. What I think, say, do on Christ, job on Christ, relationship on Christ, parenting on Christ, marriage on Christ. You see, guys, I think it comes down to this. Unfortunately, we've done a poor job in the church as a whole, this ambiguous we as a whole. We've done a poor job of grounding the realities of what it means to be saved and sanctified in the central matter of it all, justification by faith in Christ. Because I think the key, what Paul is saying here, at least in the letter to Galatians, and I would argue beyond the letter of Galatians, is this. The key to the Christian life is this. Through faith in Christ, you're simultaneously dead and alive. That's the key. Dead to the law as a way of being saved while simultaneously alive by faith in the Son of God. Crucified with Christ while simultaneously alive with Christ in you. And so the challenge for us is, listen, how do we keep in step with the truth of this good news? Again, you've got to remember the context of your Bible. This isn't random truth randomly inserted at a random moment. Paul is talking to Peter, saying this whole justification by faith thing is really, really important, not just for salvation, but it's important for the conduct of our lives. And he's rehashing this story to the Galatian Christians right now because they need to hear how the conduct of our lives is meant to mesh with this truth of the gospel that we're justified by faith. What does this look like? How do we keep in step with the truth of this good news? And for the answer to this question, you'll have to tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, right? Same Galatians time, same Galatians channel. Because guess where Paul's going to go next? That's exactly where he's going to go. He's going around the corner and say, oh, foolish Galatians. I mean, you guys started off with this whole 
faith in Christ thing. Now you're going to try to like go back to works to make sure you keep in step with the truth of the gospel. He's like, that's not how it works. And he's going to lay some heavy on us. Chapter 3 and 4. If you're not reading Galatians right now as we're preaching through this, man, you need to go read through some Galatians because chapter 3 and 4 is going to take you for a loop. It's some heavy lifting. But man, when you get into chapters 5 and 6, Paul is going to really connect the dots because he's going to say, listen, your justification by faith, that's how you started off this Christian walk, but your sanctification by faith is not abandoning justification. It's you walking justified. This relationship now is through the Spirit, and then verses 5 and 6, guess what he's going to do? He's going to circle back around to the Spirit language, and he's going to say, this is how this whole conduct and step with the truth of the gospel thing is going to work out. So if you're like, man, like, how does this work out? Hey, John, I get it. Justified by faith in Christ. Woohoo! got it. But what does this mean for a life? That's what chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 of Galatians are there for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of justified by faith in Christ. Wow, good news. Justification is for the sinner. Such good news. Father, I'm asking that you would do a work of wowing us with the gospel right now. I think that's what's pressing on my spirit. Unfortunately, for many of us, the gospel, the good news of justification barely elicits a yawn because it's familiar to us. And familiarity can breed contempt, but familiarity can just breed apathy. Familiarity can breed passivity. The amazing grace that bowled us over on that day of salvation, for many of us, it's a distant memory, and we are not wowed by the good news of justification by faith in Christ. So, Spirit, I, I can't do that. I can't whip that up in anybody, nor dare I try to. But I think that is a work of the Spirit. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to wow me. Would you just wow me with the gospel of grace? Would you bowl me over with the gospel of grace? Would you bring it so front and center into my life that I could not evade the way I think, speak, and act, but for looking through the lens of justified by faith in Christ, that gracious, gracious good news. God help us. For those here who don't know you, who have not justified, God, please save them this morning. Would you bring that growth? Would you save them? Would you convert them? Would you bring them to repentance and faith in the Son? Would today be the day of their salvation? It's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now's the time in our service where we celebrate what